Well, friends, um, there's a lot of things dividing us, I think, in, in the world and even in the church today. So I'm going to uh, make a non-controversial statement to start us off today. Grandmas are awesome. Yeah? Yeah. Grandmas are awesome. Yeah! Party kick. All right. Uh, this is my grandma, uh, one of my grandmas. This is my grandma, Marion Martin, uh, on my dad's side. And, and she uh, was a delightful woman. She's not been with us now for many years, but um, she was wonderful. Born in 1913, lived through the Depression, kind of lived out some of those values deeply affected by that. And uh, my, my grandma was, uh, you know, a pillar of faith. She lived a quiet, consistent life. And uh, as grandmas do, she taught me some things. And one of the things that she used to say often, both to me and her other grandkids, but also to the four kids that she raised, my dad and his three siblings, was a very simple phrase, but it stuck with me uh, my whole life. She would just say, right is right. Anybody else's grandma say something like that sometimes? Yeah, right is right. And grandma would use this in uh, lots of, of different ways. There's some famous family stories where she would, uh, where she would say things like this. For example, uh, she refused to see any movies starring Elizabeth Taylor because she was not a terribly moral person in my grandmother's uh, assessment. And right is right. All right. Uh, <laughs> My Aunt Susan told a story about she was probably third or fourth grade, and, and um, instead of coming home directly from school, uh, she instead went to a girlfriend's house and stayed there till dinner time. And when she then finally got home, she got scolded, she got disciplined, and she got told, right is right, right? And uh, young people, if you didn't understand that story, um, back in the day, we didn't have phones that we carried around with us, so that wasn't the same thing. Um, in any case, maybe the most famous story um, of right is right from my grandma and sort of our Martin family tradition is this. Uh, if my dad, for example, got a Christmas gift and it cost $7.37 more than my Uncle Jack's Christmas gift, my Uncle Jack would get $7.37 taped to the uh, wrapping paper inside of his gift. Because right is right. This was Grandma. This is how she was. Now, if you think about it, though, this has very broad implications for all of us, doesn't it? Right is right is something we could remind ourselves a lot of times. Often when we know the right thing to do, but we have to have courage in order to do it. And even in order to search out the right thing to do. Grandmas just have a way of knowing things, don't they, and teaching us. So with a tip of the cap to my sweet Grandma Martin, um, that brings us to our big idea today, which is simply this. It's always right to do the right thing. I'm all about controversial statements today. Uh, it's always right to do the right thing. Now, that may seem grossly obvious, but uh, what did it mean for grandma, and, and what does it mean in our life? Now, determining what the right thing is maybe isn't simple. For our purposes today, we'll say it means obeying God's will, obeying God's laws. And, and here's what I would challenge you to think about today as we go through our passage and consider these things together. I think for a lot of people, the Christian walk is about avoiding the bad stuff about not doing those sins that we used to commit. And, and that's a good and worthy thing. That's what repentance is. But I think there's more to it because sin isn't always just failure. Sometimes sin is also the failure to act. And sometimes we need to think about not just the wrong we're not doing, but the right that we're failing to do. And I think who we're going to read about today was faced with that very idea. 
If you've been joining us the last couple of weeks, you know we are in a series that we're calling Angels of Christmas, where we're examining the angelic visits that lead up to the birth of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we heard from Dr. Ansel about uh, the angelic visit to Zechariah in the temple. Last week, we heard from Josh about uh, Gabriel visiting Mary and, and talking about the Christ child. Today, we're going to be looking at Joseph and his angelic visit in a dream in Matthew chapter 1. And then next week, our last Sunday of Advent, we'll be looking at the angelic visit to the shepherds on the hillside. So can I ask a favor of you today? Can I ask you to um, try not to be disaffected by this story because it's so familiar? It'd be easy to do. It'd be easy to just set it aside. But if you really look at this story closely, it's a stunning story. It's kind of outrageous. I mean, there are... um, quite a few interesting pieces here that have to do with reputation and relationships and sex and all of these things. It's actually quite a stunning story. And and so as we look at it together, let's put ourselves a little bit in the time of the story. Let's, Let's live in the narrative a little bit. Because this is the story of a carpenter who found himself with a pregnant fiance and not by him. And there's a lot of complications with that. There's a lot of question marks with that. And ultimately, this is the story of how Joseph stayed. How Joseph stayed. Let's read in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18 together. You can grab one of the Bibles from the seat back in front of you. You can turn on your Bible if you'd like, or you can read along with me on the screens. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and shall call his name, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. So let's jump back to that first verse, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother... Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about betrothal for a minute. We usually use the word engagement uh, in modern language, but ancient betrothal and modern engagement were a little bit different, and that's important to understand for the context of this story. This was likely an arranged marriage. Mary's family was involved. Joseph's family was involved. Mary and Joseph were probably involved too, and likely at this point, Joseph would have paid a bride price. Families are involved, money's exchanged hands, there is a lot going on yet, but they are not fully married yet. And one of the ways we know this is they haven't consummated the marriage, okay? So we know that they are not married. Additionally, we need to understand that um, scholars who look at the time and place that this occurred in in Galilee would say that Galilean tradition would hold that when a couple was betrothed, it was the family's responsibilities to make sure that uh, they were never alone with one another or alone with anybody else. There was a family supervision um, 
situation going on here. And so when Mary becomes pregnant, the first instinct is to believe that this is a stark and utter betrayal. See, Joseph knows that when they've been spending time together, supervised, that no funny business was going on. And so he knows that from his perspective, if if, uh, she wasn't pregnant because of him, then that means not only that Mary had betrayed him and his confidence, but that Mary's family hadn't held up their end of the bargain either. There's a lot going on here. It's embarrassing for him. It's embarrassing for his family. It's embarrassing for Mary. It's embarrassing for her family. But it's always right to do the right thing. And it seems like Joseph is trying to determine what the right thing is in this situation and for whom. As we move on to verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved excuse me, to divorce her quietly. Okay, so first, um, you know the song, you've probably heard it already this season, Mary, did you know? She did. She knew, like an angel came and told her all the things. I don't understand that song. It is theologically flimsy. Thank you. I mean, Clay Aiken's version is, I mean, beautiful, but it's a flimsy thing, okay? You know what would be an interesting song? Joseph, did you know? And he'd be like, I did not know. I have questions. Okay? So, I think this is a key point. Joseph does not believe Mary. His initial reaction is not to trust what she says. I mean, I mean, I mean think about it, right? If you were in that situation, she was like, well, there was an angelic visit, and this is from God, you know? It'd be a little bit hard to believe. I, I, I sympathize with Joseph in this situation. I sympathize with Mary, too. How can she say that in a convincing way? It would be hard. It would be very hard. Mary did know. Joseph didn't yet. It's also a little confusing because we just talked about betrothal, but it refers to Joseph as a husband. And again, this is because the traditions are different. We, we know that in this time, in this place, that he would have been considered a husband, and we have a couple of pieces of evidence to speak to that. One, if a, a betrothed person lost their spouse, if a woman, you know, a woman's betrothed, uh, you know, fiance, for lack of a better term, was killed or died due to disease, she would be treated by the church as a widow. All right? So uh, we know that. We also know that, um, excuse me, I lost my place here. We also know what is going on here. Joseph is talking about divorcing her quietly, right? The passage is speaking directly to this. So how do they be divorced if they're not married? Again, because betrothal and engagement are different. I like to think of it this way. Uh, Modern engagement is sort of like making a promise to make a promise. Betrothal was a binding contract, so we were already there. What it would have meant for Joseph to divorce her quietly is instead of um, bringing it in front of the church, instead of having some big public community-based trial, which sometimes could have happened for divorces in that time, to divorce her quietly simply meant all he had to do as a husband who felt he was wronged is uh, get one piece of paper and two witnesses, and he could have divorced her and walked away from the agreement entirely. And so obviously, Joseph, he could have chosen to leave, and he would have even been justified. He had a means of escape. But would it have been the right thing to do? And for whom would it have been right? And clearly, he's struggling with knowing if this is the thing he should do as we go to verse 20. 
But as he considered these things, he hadn't totally landed yet. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he considered these things. He wasn't sure yet. Was he going to uphold the promise he had made? Was he going to do the right thing? In order to make the decision, uh, he had to get to the big event, at least the big event as far as the series is concerned. He, he needed the visit from the angel. And um, this visit changed the trajectory of Joseph's life, clearly. He had in his mind to divorce her, and instead, something very different is going to happen. So the first thing that the angelic visit does for him is that it confirms that Mary is telling the truth. And this is a huge relief to Joseph, obviously. My guess is, we don't know, my guess is he wanted to believe her, but he was having a hard time. But no, the angel tells him she had not been unfaithful, and this baby she was carrying was remarkable, it was special. It was supernatural, and he now had confirmation of this. But his trajectory was changed in a couple of other ways as well, as we carry on into verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, the sins, from their sins. Now, some of you remember a time when you couldn't just do the little sonogram thing and find out the gender of the baby until the baby came, right? Supernatural sonogram pretty awesome. Angelic visit being like, not only are you having a baby, it's a boy. And in the ancient world, this was a big deal. No disrespect to the ladies, but you got to understand, for Joseph, having his, his first child be a son was a big deal. This was basically a retirement plan built in. This is who was going to take care of him financially and otherwise once he got old and couldn't work anymore. This was a really big deal. But obviously, there's more going on here than just that. A third reason why his trajectory changed is because of this almost unbelievable thing that the angel says to him, that you're, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Friends, this is the gospel distilled, not even just in a verse, but in a name. It's right here. When we hear the name of Jesus, we shouldn't just think of the person, we should think of the living message that he is. What this tells us specifically, what his name tells us, which literally means Yahweh is salvation or something akin to that, it means this. One, people are in need of saving. Two, he, Jesus, has the power to save them. And three, he is willing to save them and he will do it. He will fulfill his promise. For Joseph, as well for the rest of us, this is more than a retirement plan. This is an eternity plan. This is awesome. This is fantastic. And so this has personal implications for every person in this room. You are a part of the group of people who need saving. One. Two. Jesus is the one who has the power to save you. Three. He can and he does and he has saved people just like you and me. And then I would say there's a fourth reality to this is that his salvation power is special and unique. After the birth and the life 
and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we get to Acts chapter 4, where it says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, Jesus is the only one who can and does save. He's the only one who can solve our sin problem. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And so when we hear Jesus, we should hear the fullness of the gospel being explained. Now, all that said, it's a little curious considering the next part of the passage. It seems like Mary and Joseph messed this up. All right. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So why did they name him Jesus and not Emmanuel? This is confusing a little bit. All right. So different people have taken different passes at this, and this is my best understanding with it, so take it with whatever grains of salt you want. Um, one author, uh, I thought he ex- summarized it extremely well. He talks about the difference between the name of Jesus versus the nature of Jesus, and he points out specifically that um, just the, the, what we're pulling from here in uh, verse 23, when it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, is from Isaiah chapter 7. Just two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, we get this. We get his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet Mary and Joseph didn't name him any of those things either. See, um, to better understand what Isaiah meant by the name Emmanuel, it's helpful to consider that, that idea. These names were given to describe the nature of Jesus of the Messiah, not serve as literal given names. Likewise, Emmanuel is not so much a personal name as it was a title descriptive of Christ's mission. So it's not wrong to call him Emmanuel. It's just more the nature of who he is. It made me think of this. At one time, uh, I actually met a guy. His name was John Music, and he was a professional musician, and I thought that was pretty cool. But to say that his name is Jesus, which is literally, you know, that Yahweh is salvation, and then he literally was Yahweh, who is salvation, that's way cooler. That's way cooler. His essence, his title, those things are Emmanuel. His name, though, is Jesus. He is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sin. The next thing we need to talk about, though, here is the virgin birth. Okay, so between the two events, I think the virgin conception sort of is the headliner. Because everybody's like, there is a way babies are made, and this one was made differently, right? And so the virgin conception usually gets most of the press. You know what I'm saying? But I want to talk about the virgin birth for a minute, because um, this is interesting, too. Just go back into the situation here. So, okay, Mary and Joseph betrothed, hear from the angels. And then at some point in the timeline, do get married before Jesus' birth. So here's what you have. This is the situation you have here, friends. You've got an arranged marriage with two teenagers who get married and are living in a house together. And they're not consummating their marriage. And does this qualify as a second miracle, okay? I, I mean, I shouldn't... Not literally, okay? I shouldn't mess around with the word miracle here, okay? Uh, but I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Okay, all right, this is like... What I think this, in all seriousness, what I think this speaks to is the character of Joseph and the character of Mary. Even in the passage, it says that Joseph is a just man. He's a just man. And I think this was Joseph's attempt, along with Mary, of course, to live out 
the goodness of God. Now, what's interesting, conspicuously absent from the words of the angel was this instruction. The angel did not say, eh, by the way, you're not allowed to, he, that didn't, didn't get said. So why does this happen? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us outright. But my guess, my guess based on all the contextual clues is this. Joseph wanted everybody to know what the angel had told him. This baby was special. This baby was created by supernatural means. This baby was not a typical baby. And the way that he could do that, the way he could honor the angelic command, the way he could honor Mary, the way he could honor baby Jesus was to just have some self-control. And I think that was a very honoring thing he did, even though he wasn't intrinsically commanded, or at least we don't have a record that he was. All right, so we move on. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, confirmed here in verse 25, what I just said, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here's Joseph. He's, he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed by a lot of things. He's embarrassed by what it looks like to have a pregnant fiance. More embarrassed by the fact that the child wasn't even his. And additionally embarrassed by the fact that, maybe, that he had thought about very seriously divorcing her. He takes all this embarrassment, and he ignores it, repents of it, sucks it up. I don't know exactly what he did, but he changed here. There's a dramatic change from his plans to what he actually did. And shocker of shockers, it took an angelic visit to get a man to change his mind. And, but he did. And let's not kid ourselves. Joseph had other choices here. He had several other choices. Think about it. Joseph could have dismissed the dream. He could have been like, oh, that fish I ate was a little bit sketchy. Maybe that's why I had a bad dream. I don't know if that was actually an angelic visit. He could have dismissed that outright. He could have accepted that the vision was from God, that the visit was actually a real angel in his dream, and he could have ignored it anyway. Ask Jonah how that turns out, right? I mean, you can know something's from God and ignore it anyway, right? He could have accepted it, and he could have hid. Here's what I mean. He could have even hid with an air of moral superiority. He could have just let little things go, let people know that, he was leaving because of, well, I don't want to say too much, but let's just say she was unfaithful. I don't want to say too much, but she cheated. He could have hid behind all of those things, but that's not what he did. Joseph chose to stay. He chose to live in the messiness. He chose to live in the embarrassment. He chose to do what is right because it's always right to do the right thing. And make no mistake. When Joseph chose to stay, he was choosing an awful lot. Joseph chose obedience to God's message, and he chose obedience to God's messenger. He chose faithfulness to Mary, a promise he had made to her, and a promise he had made to her family. He chose to protect Mary's honor. If he would have left, it would have been him saying, I don't believe her. And by doing so, he's protecting her honor. And he had to sacrifice his own pride and honor. But there's one other thing that he chose that resonates really deeply with me. Joseph chose dedication to a son who was not his, or at least not his yet. I love that the story of Christmas is a story of adoption. It's really meaningful to me. You know, if you are an adoptive parent or a step-parent, if you are adopted or have step-parents, then 
you can maybe understand this in a unique way. You can understand the story of Christmas in a way maybe other people can't. Although that's not entirely fair because we don't want to say it too narrowly. Whether you're a parent um, biologically adopt, through adoption or step parent, whatever, you still have to choose to stay. You have to choose to show up every day and be a parent. There's still a choice inherently involved there. And so in that way, I think we all can relate. This is the story of how Joseph stayed how he stayed despite the reasons he had not to stay. You see, Joseph had to face the reality that right is right. Despite the embarrassment that might come, despite what people might say, despite what fear was telling him, despite the fact that he was making a lifelong commitment to both Mary and Jesus, despite all this, Joseph behaved like the Old Testament examples he had read about since he was a boy, Men and women who were faithful to God's instruction, faithful to God's call, no matter what. And that was a wonderful and a beautiful thing. So um, in closing, I, I want to share a, a delightful memory I have um, from when I was a kid. And there's a chance I've shared this before, but it's a fun story, so it's fine. Um, I grew up in the 90s, and back in the 90s, I think it might, maybe it was because of like Captain Planet or something, but like everybody was real into environmentalism. You remember this in the 90s? And um, at one point, like people were real obsessed with acid rain. Some of you remember this? That was like a thing people were talking about a lot. So my buddy Mark and I, we were best buds, you know, kind of thing where we would be at each other's house every day. We lived just on the other side of the block from each other. And so my mom was like his second mom, and his mom was like my second mom, and that's just how it was, right? And we were outside one day playing with super soakers, you know, the good ones. Awesome, right? And it starts sprinkling. Now, recently, Mark's mom, uh, her name's Trina, she had gotten this new car that she loved so much. It was a teal Geo Prism, right? You guys remember those, right? She loved this car. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Well, Mark and I are planning and, you know, having be, being big fans of Captain Planet ourselves, you know, it starts raining and we're like, in our imaginative world, and we're like, it's acid rain. And your mom's car, she loves that car. We got to protect the car. So we're in our world of imagination. And so we take our super soakers and we're like, we got to get this rain off the car. Scrape, scrape, scrape on the top of this brand new car. So Trina hears this noise and she comes outside and she loses it. I mean, just lays into us. I mean, completely hollering, and she's yelling at Mark, and then she turns and yells at me. <laughs> and I was usually a rule follower, okay? That's just, that's just kind of who I was, but something about me was feeling extra plucky that day, and so she starts yelling at me, and I do this, I start cross my arms. And she's yelling at me, and she's getting mad. And I look her right in the eye, and I go, you're not my mom. <laughs> and Trina looks me back in the eye, and she goes, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> and immediately, I'm like, yes, ma'am, OK, whatever you say. You know, like, just snapped me right out. I thought I was so tough. She took me down with four words. It was over. That's a ridiculous story. Why did I tell it? Um, the reason I told it is this. I didn't do the right thing right away. I didn't accept my punishment and my responsibility for trying to stop the acid rain off the geo prism. Um, and Joseph didn't do the right thing right away either. Friends, uh, Joseph, the father of Jesus, didn't accept that he was a Messiah immediately. 
And so what I would say to you is that um, it's always right to do the right thing. And another way of saying that is it's never too late to begin following God. It's never too late to begin. And earlier at the beginning, I, I talked about, you know, that we're not just supposed to avoid sin. Life isn't just about sin management. It's also about doing what God wills, what God decrees, what God commands. And so I would ask you, I would implore you to think about what is it that you have failed to do that you know God is calling you to do? What relationship do you need to mend? Who do you need to forgive? Where do you need to start serving? To what worthy organization do you not need to start being more generous? What is that right thing, and how are you going to start obeying it? But maybe there's another implication, too. I mean, those are all things you should do if you're a follower of Jesus, but, but I would say this as well. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe uh, you're, you're here because somebody dragged you. Uh, maybe you're just, you've been here and you're here willingly, but you're just not sure what you think about this Jesus person yet. I know you probably haven't had an angelic vision to try to convince you of the truth of who Jesus is. But what I would encourage you to think about is that um, God is speaking to you, even now. He probably has you here today for a reason. He wrote you an entire book that we call the Bible that gives you the best way to live your life. And let me be very clear. Uh, this room, this church, is, is not filled with people who are morally superior. Um, we are failures as humans, every single one of us. There's not a single person here who hasn't really messed up, and collectively we've done some pretty terrible things. It's not about moral superiority. It's about realizing that we're in need of salvation, and we're in need of a Savior. And so we're, we're going to sing um, a song here as the team comes back up that it's going to speak to this name of Jesus. It's going to speak to its power. And I'd bring us back to Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one other than Jesus. You cannot be a good enough person to make your way to heaven. That's not how it works. It's only by submitting our hearts to Jesus, by saying, there is a God and I'm not him. And I need salvation and I need a savior. And that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only in Jesus that we can be saved. So let's reflect. What good thing are we failing to do that we need to do? Or can we reflect today on whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be? Joseph didn't get it right, right away, but eventually he did. Maybe today's your day to do the same.